I've never been offered uh, a tea at a at a podcast recording before, so thank you very much Ooh. for the tea. <laughs> <laughs> That's a nice way to start. It is a very nice way to start. And you haven't had a cake. I haven't had a cake. I'm going to have a cake now. And if you feel like one halfway, please turn off and take one. Well, I can just uh, eat while while we uh, while we record. Did you have a plate or something? Is it okay if I? Yes, it's fine if you want. No, I'd, would you like a sauce in here? Have this one. I haven't used it. Oh, thank you very much. I'll do more podcasts. Put some more on, then you don't have to come over. I'll start with one. <laughs> <laughs> so, thank you very much for agreeing to do this, uh, Molly. I'm with um, Molly Sasson, um, who has had quite uh, an extraordinary life in secret intelligence. Um, you've worked across many different agencies from um, the RAF to MI5 to, um, to ASIO um, through some of the most trying sort of conditions and um, I guess situations certainly of the 20th century if not you know in the history of, uh, of modern civilization um, so thank you very much for coming and sitting with me and having a chat um, with a um, little filmmaker. I'm very, very humbled to have you on my show. Thank you. It's my pleasure to talk to you. Mm. That was a really bad time for me to take a bite. <laughs> Welcome to a very special coming up next interview, part one of my interview with Molly Sasson, the author of More Cloak Than Dagger, a book about her journey through counter-espionage with MI5, MI6, the RAF and ASIO amongst other organisations. This interview is a little bit different and I know that you're going to love hearing Molly's insights into what the life of a counter-espionage spy is. She has some pretty amazing stories about what it was like to be working uh, for those organizations during some pretty critical moments in recent human history. And stay tuned for later in the week as I will be bringing you part two of this incredible interview with this amazing human being. And don't forget, friends, you can find us on social media at Cun Podcast on Twitter and Instagram and on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash cun podcast there's a whole back catalogue of amazing interviews on uh, on itunes we are under coming up next on the itunes on the stitcher and at coming up if you're feeling particularly fancy you might like to give us a five-star review and if you'd like to read more on molly sasson her book more cloak than dagger can be bought online through connor's court bookstore or at Readings in Australia, uh, or probably any other good book retailer, if there are many of them out there. And if not, they should be picking up this book because it is a fantastic read. So that's it, friends. I will leave you now for part one of my interview with Molly Sasson. I've, I've just um, had a look at your book. I've been reading your book, um, More Cloak Than Dagger which was only released um, in August of uh, this year of 2015. 
and it's uh it's a deeply fascinating kind of account of um of a woman's journey being a spy and one of the things that strikes me early on in the book uh is that you actually were trained and you wanted to be an opera singer that's right mm. yes actually not an opera singer and a singer of leader I I loved songs more than opera, um, and I specialised in that in my studies. And um, I had a high soprano voice, which was... um, um, It's not not normal. You have many sopranos, but you don't have coloratura sopranos very easily. And uh, that was noticed when I was at school, and uh, from there on in, I became a study... um, a student in in singing, mm. and um, after I finished my schooling, I went to the academy, and uh, was admitted and enjoyed that very much. And for two years, nearly two years, I continued my studies and um, was getting on very well and loving it. And I sang around London, and different uh, at, at weddings and funerals and uh, dinner parties and. That was a very enjoyable time, although there was a war on. But um, this was in the late thirties. That was in the yes, in the early forties. Mm. But um, that came to an end when I joined the Royal Air Force, because that seemed to me much more important at the time. Mm. And I planned to go back to music, which I never did because I loved my service career. Mm. So what I'd love to um to kind of talk about this idea you kind of putting service to your country and service to your fellow man over your own um objectives I guess or desires or wants. Yes. Um, it was a very strong feeling I had mm. that I had to do that. What what was the what was the feeling that you had? Um, I was a great admirer of Churchill, and uh, I was overawed by what the Battle of Britain our pilots did, and that was the service I wanted to join. I mm. loved it, mm. and sad I had to leave, had to give it up. When I became pregnant, I got married and got um, expecting a baby. This was sometime much later, in '54. I got married in '47. Mm. Before we go into that, I'd love to um to talk about um, your time in the RAF because this was when you were also enlisted by MI5 and MI6 to go um, undercover in uh, in Germany to um, get a um, a Russian spy out of who defected to. Uh, the Allies. Yes. Um, I had no idea this job was coming my way. Mm. Um, when I joined up, as soon as they realised that I had knowledge of languages, which I learned at school, at a, at, a, at a continental school where languages were the foremost um, subjects, they were the most important. And um, when I joined up, the fact that I knew... Um, that I'd studied and learned uh, German 
was of importance at the air ministry when I when I when I joined up. And uh, after that, I was listed for intelligence work, so I I became an intelligence officer. And my first job was censorship in London. Um, after I finished my initial training, which was pretty tough. <laughs> What 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 happens in the training? Well, it's it's quite a culture shock when you come from a comfortable home and you have to learn to to live with the very bare bare necessities in a Nissan hut with twenty other people, girls, um, and uh, eat in a mess on benches, queue up for all your meals and march here and march there and do long route marches with all your kit. That was not very pleasant, but uh, we did it, and uh, it was obviously necessary to face the the arduous times ahead. So uh, that only lasted six weeks, and um, looking back, it was a very good way to start. And uh, I loved my service life. Mm. I met some wonderful people. I could imagine you met people from all... uh all walks of life. Yeah, I did. And some very fine people. Mm. And um, after that, um, I had some postings, yes, once first time to Germany, the second time I was called back to London. Um, and I met representatives from um, the, the security services. And they questioned me. And... Um, Obviously, I was in for a special job, but I had no idea until I was well into it. Um, I was told that I would uh, be given a different identity and I couldn't see any of my family or friends and I had to disappear until the job was finished. And I took that on and I ended up... um, We got... At that time, the world's most famous refugee out of Germany, East Germany, where he had been in charge of all the German, all the Russian troops in the Russian zone in Germany. He was a colonel in the. He was head had been head of the Zhukov Academy in Moscow, but he was also Stalin's um, important. Uh, scientist working mm. on um, um, aviation um, special services and also he um, was a rocket scientist and he came to England with the most incredible information in 1947 mm. and <clears throat> he um, was looked after by MI5 uh, first of all, MI6 was involved too. MI6 was involved in Berlin where he was talking to them and uh, he was very against the Soviet regime. But he was a very a very um, ardent Russian national. He loved his country. He came from southern Russia and southern Russia was being very badly treated by Stalin. He was uh, an Ossetian by birth and by and the rest of his feelings <coughs> all during his life was he was a nationalist 
Mm. And he was very grateful to be in England, away from it all. And But he was a very worried man because he wasn't sure whether they believed him. Mm. And it took months to get that cleared up. And I lived with him as his guide and, guide and translator and interpreter. And um, also I was briefed every week on what he said and what he was doing. And so they got a good idea of how he was feeling. Mm. But it was a tough time for the family. It was He had his wife and a little daughter of nine. And um, I lived with that family day and night. I couldn't leave them. They weren't allowed out. The little girl couldn't go to school. It was all a very tough time for, for all of us, really. But in that uh, time, we became uh, very close, and uh, we all needed one another. And... Um, I was very happy to do it, and it lasted two years altogether. Wow. We had some adventures. We were um, in dangerous moments, yes. I was armed all the time, and we had some narrow escapes, but it went all right. Mm. And uh, he um, became a very um, important part of the Department of Defense, Mm. who he was advising and... uh, and also an important scientist because he went, uh, he set up the um, Northampton College of Advanced Education, the rocket d- development uh, branch there. Mm. And um, he wrote 10 books in the time on science, on rocket science, and the rest of the um, books, there were three books he wrote for general publication. And they were very valuable. Mm. I'd love to. Um, I'd love to hear about some of the uh, narrow escapes. Well, um, we were we were picked up when we had to go out. We were picked up by an, a, a driver from MI five, um, and he'd pick us up and have, you know, in, he'd been in charge of us, and we'd go to one of the parks and have a walk. Um, he'd feed the gulls on the Thames and watch the flights. He used to always point out to me how how wonderful birds were because he taught him they taught him a lot about aviation. Mm. Um, and uh, we used to go for a short walk, and then we'd have to get back in the car and go home. Um, and so we were always on the alert. And on a few of those occasions, um, the driver used to t- take a different route than what we thought we were going to go because he spied a car that he didn't like. And um, th- those trips were not very pleasant. Mm. But we always got out of it, and uh, luckily. And um, one particular occasion I, I think we'll, we'll mention here was when... Uh, he'd had a very tiring day. He used to get interviews from important people at home, always at home. And uh, his English wasn't very good in the early days, so um, I used to be in on most of those interviews to help him with his English. But um, this particular night, he wanted to have a bath, and he was tired, and his wife and I were sitting listening to some music, And suddenly we heard him yelling upstairs, big screams. So I rushed upstairs with my gun, of course, (laughs) 
and uh, threw the bathroom door open and found him in the bath, crouching, trying to get out of the sight of this, um, of, of, of a man in a black hat with a gun in his hand, wow. peering in through the window. Now, the, he'd got out of the bath, and he was in between the bath and the window, just out of shot for the man. And that's where the man was sort of looking to see how he could get him, and saw me, and I put my gun up, and he he fled. Mm. And I was going to shoot out and finger on the trigger. I was going to just do it. I was told to, if anybody came in, to shoot to kill. Mm. But uh, he was gone then down a stairway because the house we were living in was on a on a on the first floor over a business a shop and um the first floor had a balcony at the back and that led to Woolworth supermarket and there was a big fire escape that he'd got up in and we think he came up behind that window through that that uh, alleyway and the staircase but anyway he got away with it. Mm. And I immediately phoned our emergency number and the car came with the, the, the driver and um, we set off to an unknown destination at that time. And we drove and we drove and we drove. This was in the evening, about half past nine, when it happened. And um, we were gone by 10 o'clock. The whole thing was done very soon. We always had some baggage ready to take if we had to move. And we did six moves like that in the course of two years. Mm, wow. Yeah. It must it be. And we had a lovely holiday for three weeks on a farm in in, in Devon. And it was a very welcome break. <laughs> we had a car at our disposal and we could go. I took them around Somerset. It was really lovely. Mm. But that didn't last. We were back in serious business three weeks later mm. and we had different addresses and whenever there was a risk somebody wandering up and around or it seemed as though there was something to worry about we moved mm. what must the relief have been like when you when you finish a mission like this and you can go back to your family <laughs> i went on a holiday <laughs> <laughs> We, my husband and I went to the uh, Silly Isles. Right. So you didn't see your husband for two years? No, he was in Singapore. Right. Uh, two weeks after we got married, he was posted to Singapore. Mm. And without knowing that this was going to happen, because if uh, if that had been offered to me by my husband in England, I doubt whether I could have done it. I don't think he would have liked that. Mm. But he was in Singapore, and I was able to keep in touch with both my parents and him uh, by letter because um, a wing commander, an Air Force wing commander, he was um, he used to come and see me in the house and keep an eye on also on because uh, he was an Air Force colonel, uh, the Russian, and um, he used to bring him a paper or bring his wife flowers. I used to get a pat on the back, hmm. <laughs> which was very useful. <laughs> anyway, he, he became uh, air, co um, air marshal of the Royal Air Force. Wow. Sir, Sir Christopher Hartley. Mm. Lovely man. We got on very well, and um, he used to keep in touch with me afterwards. 
What's uh, can you describe what it was what it what the feeling was like when you when you receive this mission mission brief I guess and and you know that you're going to have to assume a new identity you're going to be living in a foreign country and you're not going to be able to see friends or family or loved well, ones Well that's how I took in my stride I was um, keen to help and I knew that it was something important mm. and um and it was something German, and I, I didn't know where it was or what it was, but I thought, well, I'm useful, I'll do it. Mm. How important do you think it is in life to have that kind of sense of importance that you're doing something that's, I guess, bigger than yourself? Well, when there's a war on, I don't think you think like that. You take what's offered to you, and if you can possibly do it, you'll do it. Mm. And that was uh, this was, of course, immediately after the war. But uh, the, the Cold War was a very definite war. Mm. And uh, spies were everywhere. And it was, I dealt with that before. And uh, in my service career, we had, um, we were warned and watching, and, you know, we had, that's how it was. Mm. So. It was an honour to do it. Mm. And we became good friends afterwards. When he was released and he became a British subject, he had a British passport. Um, we, all, we always became friends. He, he always said to me, you were like a sister to me. And his wife too, she was, she was very sad at leaving. She didn't understand half of what was going on because she was... She didn't know her husband had links with MI6 when they were living in East Germany. So when she was bundled in an aircraft and flown to England, she had no idea what was going on. Mm. And so she became very depressed. She was depressed for the first couple of months. But we, we got her out of it. Mm. And she accepted it and became quite a happy soul. Mm. I can't really uh, imagine what it must be like to... Uh lived through a war of such magnitude. Mm. Uh, well, she was worried about her old mother and father who were living on a farm outside Moscow. Mm. And um, she was terrified they'd be badly treated. And I believe they were. We could never really find out. Or we didn't know. Mm. But uh, she never saw them again because she stayed in England. She didn't go back to the Soviet Union. Um obviously not then he became uh, old and confused by 2005 and um, he died in 2006 mm. yeah we saw I, we kept in touch and we met we visited him in uh, in in a nursing home and he wasn't the man I knew. Mm. He'd had a very trying and, and difficult life. Mm. But a very clever and a very handsome man and a very clever man and a very good man. Mm. Yeah. Something you said in there was uh, you were um, talking about the Cold War as well. And you were... Um, this is kind of where you really started to, um, I guess, branch out in... in uh, as a spy in secret intelligence, 
And there was one thing that I was uh, that I was reading in your book um, around treachery in Britain that there were moles, yes. and I believe um, they Shocking. were they were known as the um, there was the Cambridge Five. The Cambridge Five. And it was shocking, and uh, the British government didn't do enough. They didn't check people in service jobs in in the um, foreign office and home office, all those sensitive areas, um, until after 1960. Mm. And so what was your role in this? Well, I was um, posted to Air Ministry. Most of my service was at Air Ministry, um, in 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 intelligence, mm. and um, as I said, the first thing was uh, um, um, censorship and interviewing prisoners of war. I did that, and uh, when I was then, in, I went to another area in London, which was uh, um, dealing with foreign spies, which were wandering around. Um, and then we had, they, they were connected with, the <coughs> it's very difficult to explain what it was, but um, we dealt with foreign embassies, mm. foreign service pe- personnel, there were Air Force personnel, and uh, we had, it was the Department of Deputy Director to Foreign Liaison. Um, then... Uh, I went to uh, to Germany. That was in '44, before the war was finished, um, with the military government detachment, and um, they were moving into Germany. the The, the goal was um, a, a, a town called Verden on the Alle, and we moved from Brussels all the way up through northern Belgium into eastern Holland into Germany and right across up to we got to Verdun on the Alle. We had adventures all the way, you know, we were shot at by the Germans and bombed by the Stukas and by British aircraft too on the road. We travelled in a a convoy, Mm. carried all our own supplies. And as we moved on, we took over from the army. As the army took over, first the place was bombed, then the army came in, and then we followed the army. So we had all the... Uh, we found dead people, we found injured people we had to look after, or uh, see that they were looked after. We had a field dressing station um, about halfway, which was in, in Grunlo, which was a very good uh, setup where we could... Uh, get help from where we needed. We also came across um, German army people who'd been left behind, who were dying, gangrene. Mm. And um, they, that was all a very sad and awful, awful situation. I had to interview these people as, as, we, as we came across them because they had good intelligence. Mm. And they had nothing to lose. They were going to die, they knew it, and it was all sad. And um, for them, um, the end of the road. Mm. I guess when you're, when you're faced with so much death, um, it must create not a desensitization, but a, um, it, it, 
it makes it f- seem very real and that this is this is just a part of yeah it, life it, and part of the process it changed me it changed me a lot i was a i was a very happy go lucky person mm. and um took my life seriously but i was still an optimistic happy person i didn't like death i didn't like sickness um uh, and i was healthy myself when i saw all this i realized and it's not just one or two but i saw lots of it and i think it changed my outlook on life and living and death mm. and um i became more serious and much more aware of the shortness of life and how suddenly life can end and um that belief in god is very important mm. and also that um i can never understand how people can be agnostic mm. because everything that we have everything we see everything we have and do is directed there's a pattern to everybody's life. Mm. What's uh, what do you believe the that this pattern is? I think that when we're born we're given free will. I'm sure the almighty is um he's given us so much beautiful nature, climate, everything that we have and do is has been created by if you want to call it the creator. Yes. Mm. And um he expects us to appreciate that and also look after it and so i mean i've always loved animals i've loved plants i was brought up to do so and siamese cats in particular and siamese cats in particular <laughs> <laughs> and the elephants and donkeys mm. and dogs and cats yes <laughs> yes all, no, all animals but they were all created they're all part of the big scene and so much is uh, at fault. I think we've done so much damage to the beautiful things in the world. Mm. We've we've polluted, we've killed, we've made extinct, we've done everything that we shouldn't do. And I find that very sad. Mm. So I guess in a way your service was really a service to your beliefs of of mankind and what is morally right and wrong. Yes, yes, mm. yes. And I feel that uh, the learn- the world has such a lot to learn and instead of learning it, they're destroying it. Mm. They don't want to know. Mm. What What is your idea of the creator of the God or um, uh, of, of whatever this higher power is? Well, I think he's, uh, he created us and we will reap our benefits or the other if we don't do what he wants us to do. Mm. And it's a very simple picture as far as I'm concerned. It's very easy to understand. Mm. Just love everyone it's, and love yes, everything. Yes, mm. And also accept people who are, who are bad. You know, there are people who are bad. I mean, I think of the SS people, what they did. And now, of course, the extremists, what they're doing, um, the good and evil is very clear to define mm. in the world. And evil remains evil. And you can't overcome evil with goodness, always. Mm. And that's where I see the uh, 
the need for sometimes going to war. Mm. Mm. So and, and and when I used to deal with people who didn't want to go to war, you know, we had conscientious objectors, and I used to say to them, well, if they if you don't kill them, they'll kill you. Now you're leaving it to someone else to kill them so that you're you can live. Mm. And is that fair? You know, and then they answer you, and they really don't have an answer and <laughs> shake it off. But facts are facts, and you can't escape those. Mm. And if you look at the beauty of nature, if if you kill a tree, you can't bring it to life. If you kill a mosquito, you could never bring it to life. Now I know that we don't want them, but have you ever seen a fly under a microscope? No. Or a bee? No, I haven't. They are the most beautiful creations. We can't do it. We make robots. Mm. We can't do anything like that. Have we ever come to conclusion what the human brain is all about? No. We can't bring life to earth. Can climb shape. That is God-given divine divinity. You can't have tanker, tam, tam, tamper, tamper with. You can have IVF. You can have all this sort of thing, but it still remains the divine. Mm. So do you think that the meaning of life or the meaning of what we do in life is really about giving and creating uh, and, and everyone kind of returning to this place of being in love? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're sadly lacking. Mm. We're sadly lacking. And I suppose you would have seen firsthand a lot of this kind of lack, but probably also at the same time a lot of people coming together for a bigger reason. That is what what triggers off love, agonies and pain and... Suffering. Yeah, suffering. Mm. That's absolutely right. Mm. And I suppose there would have been a lot of suffering. Yes, enormous. Mm. In what you enormous. saw and experienced children with dying parents in front of them you know and it's not always children but it's it's all sorts of sad things that happen mm. people who, do, who are in the middle of their lives and have got responsibilities and they suddenly realize the end has come and they're able to talk about it and then they did mm. that's very sad it's it's uh, and it's inflicted on them in a war mm. So it must be quite difficult then to kind of bring it back to what we were talking about initially, which was the Cambridge Five. Oh, yes. It must be quite difficult to even comprehend that there would be people who would defect or people that would be moles within their own country and that would essentially cause, like that's the end product of what they're doing. Absolutely, but then you see they, um, they had an ideology. Mm. Maybe could you just explain a little bit who the Cambridge Five were, just for the, my listeners? Well, Burgess and McLean, they were the two, and Philby. Philby was the worst one. Um, Burgess and, they were spies and McLean, yes, Burgess and McLean were both working in foreign affairs. Um, they came from university where they got the initial introduction to communism. Mm. Um, the universities and the school of of economics in London 
were well known for the, the left uh, introduction of the left. And when they left university, they were um, introduced to and caught up by with the Russian agent masters. There was one particular man called Moden, who was well known. Deutsch was another one who was well known. They used to um, meet them, talk to them, and they recruited these people. These are um, men German. from the KGB. They were KGBs, yes, not not Germans. They had German names, but they weren't. Modern was, um, they both were uh, Russians. And spy masters. Mm. And they had techniques, how they used to um, get people involved. As we have agents, we get people involved in ASIO and see whether they're not, whether they're good, good people to encourage. And they get to know them on a friendly basis. And then, of course, once they've got them that far, then they're able to get deeper and become friends. And then they ask them to do something. And then either they make them change their minds politically and they get them that way or um, through offer of money. It all depends what it is, sometimes through blackmail. Mm. But in these cases, they were people with an ideology. They right. believed in communism. Mm. Um, and they were also weak people. They were um, both were homosexuals, and they had that bond and tie. Um, Philby was not. But they were heavy drinkers, and um, both of them were. Um, they they led sordid lives. McLean got married. Burgess never did. The Russians wanted Burgess to marry Clarissa, who was um, um, Eden's. Uh, who. They wanted, I wanted Calista to marry um, Burgess, but he ended, she ended up marrying, I think it was um, Eden. That didn't work out. But uh, they, they behaved very badly, mm. and they were a disgrace in their position. And you witnessed this happening? In London, yes. Um... And um, when they disappeared, there was an enormous upheaval in England because for months they didn't know where they were. Mm. Um, mm. I cannot understand how people could spy the way they did, lead a normal life, known to the security services, doing nothing, carrying on in the face of, of everything. And they retire with full pension. They go and have a nice retirement. They leave as innocents. And it's all finished and done with. And the next lot come, and they do the same. I'm talking about the spies during the war and after the war. And blatant, absolutely blatant. 
And now we've still got it, and we've got people who were dismissed a very short while ago, 20 years ago. That's not very long ago in, in history. Mm. And they're still walking around, at least 10 of them, and they were caught by the federal police. And this is in um, ASIO? Yeah, here in ASIO, mm. in this country. And they're still around, and they're not being even questioned or, or sentenced. Mm. Well, this is the... I guess the next thing that I was quite interested to uh, to talk to this you about. This is the worst part of the whole thing. Mm. This is why the book I had to write because this has got to be down in history. And the people who've written these histories of ASIO have done a good job in their own way, what they could find. They haven't been given everything. Mm. They've either redacted everything or they've destroyed it. But it's... The last, the second book that's out now, I haven't read it. But I can tell you now that before I read it, I'm sure that the things that I'm telling you are not there. Mm. Mm. And they happened. Mm. I would really love to, um, I'd love to hear about your experience with ASIO kind of from when you were brought in to the company. Mm. Or the organisation, I, I The other say. part doesn't matter, really. You know, the other part is, is uh, um, just an ordinary life because service life and, and life in the army, I was attached there to do the job in Germany. Well, it may seem fairly uh, like a normal life to you, but it's quite extraordinary for me to uh, hear and understand and... Um, well, you're a civilian, in. I suppose. That's <laughs> yeah, the difference, exactly. yes. If you interview somebody who's come back from Afghanistan, it's the same thing. Yeah. I mean, service life is uh, you're defending your country, and so whatever you're given to do, you do, whether you're in the country or outside the country. It's, mm. it's, it's part of your job. Mm. And you do it, you do it either because you have to or because you love it. And mm. You do it because you're bound to do it. And that's what it is. And that's what it is. Mm. So then tell me about uh, tell me about your experience with ASIO. Well, I met Brigadier Spry in London because I'll have to go back to my service life. I left the services when, because I was pregnant. My husband was posted to the Netherlands. This is in like the late 50s? This, is in, this was in 1954. 54. I was pregnant and left the service. I was very fond of the Air Force. I would have stayed in if that hadn't happened. Mm. Um, my husband was posted, and I went with him to the, the Netherlands. We lived in The Hague, and the, and he was working under contract with, with Fokker Aircraft Company. Previous to that, he'd been a pilot and a service, long service in the RAF. So we moved there, and then after we were there, we lost the baby, which was very sad, and I was then keen to find another job. And I tried a few few places, but as an intelligence officer, normal civilian jobs are not frequent. Mm, Probably not very stimulating either. And it wasn't, no. So it was very hard to get a job. But somehow... They found out um, that I was looking for a job and I had a phone call from Australia House. And 
I went there to have an interview and I was accepted as a, and given a consulate post in the Hague office. And the job there was to um, to uh, screen the people who wanted to come to Australia as migrants. It was a separate office, part of the embassy, um, and it was called the Australian Migration Office. And we had offices, main office was in London from the, soon after I arrived. Um, we had offices in the, in the Hague, in Paris, in Rome, in Athens, and in Cologne. And they were, the head office was in London. When I took the job in The Hague, it was the head office. And about um, some months after I started, um, they changed the head office. It was moved from The Hague to London. So the man in charge in London invited me to come to London and help him set up the, the office so that it could embrace all the others. And um, while I was there, for three weeks I worked there, setting it up. Brigadier Spry was there. He came over for uh, to see MI5 and other intelligence people across Europe. Mm. Um, and I met him and we had a good hour's talk about the situation in Europe, the, spy, the, the spying that was going on, what they were doing in uh, England, of course, and what they, was happening in Europe, very much so. And um, because I'd been in the services and thing, he trusted me from the moment I think we met. And I thought he was a, a very keen intelligence man and one that I could talk to and who could talk to me and within a week of his staying there um, he told me all about the, the problem that was existing in Australia and the problem that was um, the, the fact that he knew there were spies in the office mm. and spies in the country and he couldn't do anything about them. Mm, these are Russian spies? Yes. Right. And I, they were also Australian spies who were working for the Russians. Mm. Um, and he told me there was a Venona project, which was an American signals um, body that was in touch with a lot of information that was coming from Moscow to... Um, to London, the embassy, and other connections they had, and they could. They told us, the Rus the Americans told us that there were spies in Australia, there were spies in London. Mm. They actually knew about McLean and Burgess before, um, before we did. This is people in the CIA. Yes. Yep. And Spry told me that, and he said, "We've got a." Big big job. We've got we've got to find the spies in Australia. We haven't got the people to do it. They're not 
uh, they don't understand it, they don't know it, and the people here do, and obviously they're also in The Hague, and um, that's where you are, and he said, I'll introduce you to uh, the Dutch chief of, of uh, the spy service, I know him well, and he said, when, I'm coming to, when I come to Holland, we'll do that. So he went back to Australia. But he came back again. I think it was the year after. And I was introduced to um, Colonel Eindhoven, who was the, 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 the chief there. And he filled me in with what was going on in Holland and in Belgium and in Luxembourg because it was the Benelux area we were covering. Um, and it was quite extraordinary, and it was quite quite large. And he said, would he asked by whether I could cover some of their problems in The Hague, or in Holland they were having, because they were very, very busy and overstretched and didn't have all the staff they needed in the counter-espionage area. Mm. So together with the immigration job I was doing, interviewing and, and uh, preparing documents and receiving documents from the Dutch Justice Department and the Dutch um, um, Security Department, we got we had an agreement with them to give us records of the Dutch, whether they were suitable to come to Australia or not. We had security risks. We had the people who helped the Germans during the war, who were pretending to be uh, innocent and good migrants to be, and they had terrific records. You know, they'd helped the Germans take the, the Jews to the camps, and they'd helped Germans to... Um, round up Dutchmen and round up people and, and well, just generally do what they told them to do, which was not good things. And these people were not worthy of coming to Australia, and we stopped them. Mm. So we had to make our department there, in the ASIO office in The Hague, had to make uh, decisions whether or not they could come. Um, at least we gave the recommendations to the chief migration officer that these people were not suitable to come. And in most cases that was accepted. Mm. But immigration had the final say. Um, Brigadier Spry then, um, in 50, was it 58? gave me um, a code machine that I could inform him direct if there was anything important that he needed to know. So that's what we did. Now, I had jobs in Holland to do for the Dutch, um, over and above my work in the immigration, which was unofficial. That was not in the... In the um, interest of, well, it was in the interest, but not entirely. Um, it wasn't a known part of my job, put it that way. And it wasn't supposed to be. Mm. So it was undercover uh, of my own will to help the Dutch service 
with the knowledge. The DJ knew about it, but no one else. Bring this, but I knew. But nobody else in the office in here in Australia knew that that was happening. Mm. But I took the risk myself. It must be pretty pretty nerve-wracking when you do something like that. Well, that <laughs> <laughs> nobody was told, and that's why I had the, the, the uh, code machine to tell him. And mm. That's all. There was, there was nothing not on paper. Mm. You get addicted to the, the adrenaline of that yeah. kind of experience? So I used to do jobs for him and for for the Dutch, and one of them was um, quite serious. Um, we had a lady working in our immigration office who was in the embassy who was head of the publicity office. And we had a lot of publicity, gaining migrants, talking about migration, you know, to get migrants to go at the time. This was, I'm now talking... Um, when migration was at its highest, um, Dutch and German and Belgian, all the European migrants who were coming to Australia or wanted another life were very keen to come to Australia because post-war things were not easy in Europe. And in Holland also there was no work, there was malaise, general malaise, unemployment, um, factories hadn't started properly, everything was still moving to make a better life after the war. There was a shortage of everything, housing particularly. Um, there'd been a lot of bombing and there'd been a lot of sadness and sickness and starvation even. So a lot of Dutch people were keen to get out. And we had to be careful who we brought in. Um, this lady was posted to the embassy office um, to give information on Australia and to work what, in general, an information office does in another country. Um, the migration office was responsible for all the matters relating to migration. She had a daughter who was a very, very competent steno shorthand typist. And she had a job with the Supreme, as with the general in charge of the Supreme Headquarters Allied Europe. That was the uh, first thing that was set up after the war um, to unite all the nations that were working together in Europe at that time. The Supreme Headquarters Allied Europe. Um, it was run mainly by the Americans and the British. Um, and this general had his main office covering Europe in Scheveningen, which is a suburb of The Hague, in a barracks. And this girl worked there as his private secretary. And it was a good job. She had what they called cosmic clearance, which is above top secret. And that was fine. Now, my husband and I joined the Commonwealth Club, which was a gathering of British, um, British staff, embassy staff, um, staff. NATO had been set up by then, which was... A, um, an important thing at that time. Mm. 
there were representatives of NATO, there were representatives of British firms, American firms, um, aviation building, all these things that were coming up and very new were top secret and the Russians were keen to get what they could and they had spies in every walk of life every every um, they had them in Phillips they had them in um, Fokkers they had them just everywhere where they could get information so this girl worked for this man and we had this club and there was a big party, a big dance in the Commonwealth Club night. So we went there. And during the evening we found the girl and her mother were there, not not with us. They were sitting at another table. And she was with her boyfriend, a suave-looking man, a bit older than she. Um, and um, they were dancing cheek to cheek. And I, I said to people I was with, I wonder who that is. Oh, nobody knew this man. And below me down, there was a, a, a sudden an interval, and he came up to me and asked me to dance. So I did, and I found out he was the first secretary at the Russian embassy. Hmm. So I thought, oh... So he wanted my telephone number, and I gave it to him because I wondered, you know, I thought, well, this is worth following up. So I gave him my number, and we finished dancing. He found, he asked me if I'd been working in London, and of course he knew, he knew what I'd been doing in London, you can bet you. So I said, oh, well, yes, I come from London, but uh, I, I, I live here and I'm working here. And anyway, he um, went off and I sat down where I was. And they carried on all evening. So after the show was over, I started to think and I thought, no, this is very serious. If this girl works there and she's got this man in tow. So I followed them. Some extraordinary insights there, my friends. I hope you have enjoyed listening to this interview as much as I enjoyed conducting it. And I can't wait to share the second part with you. Stay tuned later in the week, or if this is after the week that it's been released, you can probably just jump on iTunes right now and go to part two of my interview with Molly Sasson, the author of More Cloak Than Dagger. And don't forget, at Cunt Podcast on the social medias and subscribe on the iTunes. I'll see you next time for part two. Goodbye, friends.